read this morning from Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, hear the word of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan is an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant." And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is one hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael a son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, last week we spoke about waiting 
on the Lord. Abraham has certainly learned that lesson. He and Sarai, his wife, had grown impatient, waiting for the Lord to keep his promise of an heir. And so they had taken matters into their own hands. Ishmael was born at the end of chapter 16. And note Abram's age at that time. It says in chapter 16, verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So he was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. Chapter 17 begins a full 13 years later. 13 years in which there is no record of God speaking to Abram. No record of his being encouraged by further promises. 13 years of waiting. Hagar had related to Abram what God had said concerning Ishmael. And it wasn't promising. He was to be a wild man. His hand against everyone around him and everyone against him. It doesn't sound like the son of the promise in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. So Abraham is left wondering for 13 years if perhaps Ishmael could be the one to inherit the promises after all. Sarah remains childless, continues to grow older. And then suddenly, at age 99, God appears and speaks to Abram once again. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And this is one of the few passages in the Old Testament where God is said to have appeared to someone. And yet, that clearly is not uh, the focus here in chapter 17. The focus is on what God says. We're told that he appears, and then in verse 22, then he, f- he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abram. So, God obviously appeared visually, manifested himself in some visual form to Abram at this time. Perhaps an angelic messenger, perhaps a theophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, we're not told. In the next chapter, more description will be given and more weight will be given to the visible appearance of God as he comes and, and presents himself to Abraham and talks with him. But we're told here in chapter 17 multiple times that God spoke to Abraham. Five times we're told that God said something. So that's, that's the important part of this chapter. God is speaking to his servant. And what does God say? Well, he speaks promises concerning Abram's descendants, their inheritance in the land of Canaan, and the promised heir to come. But those things are all part of a larger conversation concerning the covenant. The covenant is mentioned 12 times in this chapter. Once it is called the covenant between you and me. Twice it is called an everlasting covenant. But nine times God simply calls it my covenant. This is a covenant that God is making. Abram has no part in the making of the covenant. Two covenantal duties are required of him. But God, who is the Lord, 
initiates the covenant. He sets the terms of the covenant. He establishes its surety in himself to establish from the beginning that he has all of the authority in this situation to establish such a covenant and to make these promises with surety. God names himself. He names himself El Shaddai, Almighty God. This is no mutual contractual agreement between equals. This is a covenant between the almighty, omnipotent God and his vassal servant. This is a covenant which God imposes as God. But this also speaks to the surety of the covenant promises that are made. Abram can have complete confidence that God will make good on his promises because he is the almighty God. This is good news for us as well. For this same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God who establishes the new covenant in Christ's blood, which promises our redemption and an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom. So like Abram, we can have confidence in the promises of God concerning our salvation through faith in the seed of Abraham, who is Christ. We can have confidence in the promise of our resurrection, the resurrection of our bodies to a glorified state because that promise was made by the Almighty God who also raised Jesus from the dead. We can have confidence in the promise of an everlasting inheritance together with him in all good things because the God who raised Jesus from the dead will create a new heavens and a new earth and will give us a home there with him for eternity What wonderful promises are these that belong to us and they're given by the same almighty God by means of the new covenant just as God makes promises here in chapter 17 to Abram by way of a covenant. But notice what follows this assurance of divine power and ability to secure the promises of the covenant. It says in verse 1, I am almighty God, walk before me, and be blameless. God establishes the covenant on the foundation of his own omnipotence, but he immediately calls on the one he is covenanted with to be holy. Now, this is not unique to the covenant with Abram. We find the same is true in the new covenant. The new covenant establishes our salvation, not in our own works, but in the substitutionary death of Christ and his resurrection to new life. We enjoy the benefits and the blessings of forgiveness and of new life on the basis of faith in the finished work of Christ. But that faith, we're told in Ephesians, is a gift. Our inclusion in the new covenant and our enjoyment of the promises that are part of that covenant in no way depends on our own efforts. But we are called to live holy lives Because, Peter says, it is written, be holy, for I am holy. We are called to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, Ephesians 4.1. To walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1.10. And to let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
Philippians 1.27. God is consistent. He establishes covenants with men through sheer grace and mercy to them. He makes promises of great blessing as part of those covenants. But then he calls on those that he has covenanted with to live holy lives worthy of the covenant that he has established with them. Such is the case in the new covenant. Such is the case with Abram. The almighty God has graciously made a covenant with his people, and we are obligated to obey our covenant Lord. It was the almighty power of God at work in Abram that made it possible for him to believe the promises that God had made. And it is the almighty power of God at work in us that makes it possible for us to live holy lives worthy of the gospel. So the almighty God speaks to Abram and he demands that he walk before the Lord and be blameless. Then God makes a covenant promise in verse 2. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, this is not a new promise, but it's one that Abram has heard before. Here, God states it again, explicitly making it a covenantal promise. John Calvin comments on this verse and says, By these words, he intends nothing else than that the covenant of which Abram had heard before should be established and ratified but he expressly introduces that principal point concerning the multiplication of seed, which he afterward frequently repeats. So the covenantal promise of a multitude of descendants is the main point of the covenant, and it is restated here in the shadow of God's proclamation of himself to be almighty. Abram will have an exceeding multitude of descendants because the omnipotent, almighty God has willed it to be so. Abram's response is noted for us in verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. In light of this revelation of God as almighty, and of this promise, Abram falls prostrate before God in a pose of worship and submission to his covenant Lord. God then speaks with him. And this is the first of several speeches that God makes here in chapter 17 regarding the covenant. You'll notice that as God speaks to Abram here in chapter 17, it says that God speaks five times. The first was in verse 1 where God revealed himself. One other time will be in response to Abram later in the chapter. But as God establishes and explains the covenant, Three times it says, God said. And three times God begins with the same formula. As for, and then he names a party to the covenant. So we'll look at each of these three as fors and understand the covenant in three parts. The first as for section begins in verse 4. In verse 3 it said that Abram fell on his face before the Lord God talked with him, saying, and then in verse 4, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of many nations. The first party to the covenant is God. God is the one who establishes the covenant. And so in this first speech, he details his role of the covenant, namely the promise 
which he is the Lord of the covenant, obligates himself to on behalf of Abram. It is noteworthy that throughout this section, which runs through verse 8, God specifies seven things that he will or has already done as a part of the covenant. First, he once again states that he is making a covenant with Abram, which will include the promise of a multitude of descendants. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. So once again, the promise is reiterated to Abram. He will have a multitude of descendants according to the promise of the covenant. And to mark this aspect of the covenant, God changes Abram's name to Abraham in verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. The name Abram means exalted father. But the new name, Abraham, means father of a multitude. Well, who is this multitude? This promise concerns Abraham's spiritual seed as well as his physical seed. We know this because writing to the Roman church comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, the apostle Paul says in chapter 4 of the book of Romans, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed not only to those who are of the law, that would be the Jewish nation, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. So Paul quotes Genesis 17.5 and applies it to the entire Roman church. All who believe, Jew and Gentile alike, Abraham is the father of all who believe from many nations. And Abram's name is changed to Abraham to mark this promise. And God says that this has already been accomplished. I have made you a father of many nations. As we'll see later in our text, there were those in Abraham's household who would partake of the covenant sign, but they're not Jews by birth. So this promise was already being fulfilled. Those men of Abraham's household believed along with him. That's an amazing part of this history of Abraham and the covenant made with him that we often overlook, that Abraham's faith was already bearing fruit among the nations. Beginning in verse 6, God then switches from I have to I will. In verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. Now, this is the first time that the promise has contained this detail concerning kings. Sam Renahan comments, not only will Abraham's descendants be multiplied into nations and not only will they live in Canaan, but they will be governed by their own ruling kings. And even this promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, the King of Kings. Matthew begins his gospel account with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He then lists the descent from Abraham to David, who he designates David the king. And then from David the king, he lists the line of kings descending to Christ, the king of kings. And all of that is foreshadowed here in this covenant promise made to Abraham that kings would come from him. 
Verse 7 then builds on the promise of verse 6, saying, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So here, God promises as a sovereign Lord, making a covenant with his vassal to be their Lord and protector, their God. And he assures them that he will unwaveringly fulfill this pledge. He won't withdraw his favor, his guardianship in the future. But what does he mean by the word everlasting there in verse 7 and also in verse 8? Also, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, knowing that Scripture elsewhere speaks of the destruction of the world in fire at the final judgment and of the making of a new heaven and a new earth, we understand that the word everlasting here cannot mean eternal and unending, at least in regards to the land, which will be destroyed. But it does mean that in regards to his promise of being their God, the God to the covenant family descended from Abraham. So how do we understand and reconcile these things? Nehemiah Cox explains, there is no way of avoiding confusion and entanglements in our conception of these things except by keeping before our eyes the distinction between Abraham's seed as either spiritual or carnal and of the respective promises belonging to each. For this whole covenant of circumcision given to the carnal seed can no more convey spiritual and eternal blessings to them as such than it can now entitle a believer, though a child of Abraham, in their temporal and typical blessings in the land of Canaan. Neither can I see any reason for assigning a covenant interest in all typified spiritual blessings, as well as the temporal blessings that were the types of them, to the carnal seed and yet not admit the same covenant to convey temporal blessings to the spiritual seed. In other words, we must keep distinct what is being promised to Abraham's descendants according to the flesh, the Jews, and what is being promised to Abraham's descendants according to the Spirit, all those who believe, regardless of their family heritage. Otherwise, we would have to believe that since the Scripture says we are children of Abraham by faith, that we have a right to the land of Canaan and that all the Jews are eternally blessed with salvation by virtue simply of being descended from Abraham according to the flesh. We know neither of those things are true, so we must distinguish. So when he promises to be their God everlastingly, that promise is properly applied to the spiritual seed whose God he is and not the physical seed who do not worship him as God. And remember that Christ told the Jews that in rejecting him, they also rejected the father. But in what sense is the land of Canaan given to Abraham's seed, according to the flesh, to be theirs everlastingly? Cox again comments, Israel could not be finally cut off from the promised inheritance until the covenant by which it was given to them expired. As the duration of the inheritance and of Israel's right in it was everlasting, so the duration of this covenant This was not absolute, but was with such a limitation as the nature of the things spoken of necessarily requires, and as is usual in those scriptures that speak of things pertaining to the Jewish state. 
In other words, the promise of the land was everlasting in the sense that it was to last as long as the covenant lasted. And Hebrews tells us that the old covenant concerning the physical seed was taken away when the new covenant was established. It had served its purpose, which was to bring forth Christ. Sam Renahan says, The covenant of circumcision is a covenant of guardianship. It is a covenant that constitutes Abraham's descendants, the womb of the Messiah. And as Abraham trusted in the son of his covenant, he became a child of the son's covenant. As Abraham looked past the earthly blessings to the heavenly ones and believed in them, all Israel was called to do the same. But they were so pleased with their menus that they didn't want to eat the food when it arrived. So the promise of a son is fulfilled on two levels. Isaac is to be born according to the promise, but Isaac will not be the final fulfillment of the seed who will bless all the nations. That is Christ. So too, the promise of the land is fulfilled on two levels. Abraham's descendants, according to the flesh, would inherit the land as long as the covenant of circumcision was in effect. But this pointed forward to the promise of inheriting the world made to the spiritual descendants of Abraham in the new covenant. Echoing the language of Genesis 17, John describes the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. And then Christ speaks from his throne as king, saying, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So there is a fulfillment of this covenant to the physical descendants of Abraham. The land of Canaan is promised to them to be theirs as long as the covenant lasts. But the covenant promises and the people to whom it is promised point forward to an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. To quote Sam Renahan one more time, in other words, the multiplied offspring of Abraham's body in Canaan under their own rulers are types, but as types they point forward to an antitypical fulfillment on a heavenly level through a heavenly covenant. The great privilege of Israel established in the Abrahamic covenant is that the one who will affect and bring about that final fulfillment will be one of their own. What an incredible promise to Abraham. What an incredible blessing to his family that the promised Messiah, the seed of the woman who would finally defeat Satan, would be from his descendants. So that is the first part of the covenant, the as for me part. The second part begins in verse 9 and goes through verse 14, and it begins this way in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. So this part of the covenant has to do with Abraham. Abraham's obligations to the covenant are to keep it, and this obligation is passed on to his descendants throughout their generations. Now, this is the same word when he is told to keep the covenant. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2.15 when Adam is given his covenantal duties to tend and keep the garden. Cain uses the same word when he is asked, am I my brother's keeper? It's also used in Genesis 3.24 when God exiled Adam from the garden and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word means to keep, to protect, or to guard. This is the same duty given to us in the new covenant. 
Paul told Timothy to hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So we also have a covenantal duty to keep and guard the substance of the covenant, the gospel message. What is Abraham to keep? Well, the next verse explains, verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. A circumcision, the outward sign of the covenant, was to be guarded, kept, and protected. The observance of this ordinance of the covenant was theirs to guard. The practice of it, to see that it was practiced properly. The rest of the paragraph gives us more details. They are to perform it on the eighth day, according to verse 12. It is to be applied to all the males in the household. In verse 12 and 13, it says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Well, here again, we see the language of everlasting. And obviously, this means permanent. It's done in their flesh to their bodies. So it's a permanent reminder of the covenant. Verse 14 tells us that anyone who does not have circumcision is cut off from the covenant community, for he has broken the covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. To be cut off means to be excluded, separated from, and discarded, just as the foreskin is cut off and separated from the rest of the body. This language is then used throughout the book of Leviticus extensively when it speaks of punishment for breaking various laws and commandments. The person who breaks those laws is cut off from his people. Paul uses this terminology in Galatians. If you'll remember, speaking of the false teachers teaching heresy to the Galatian churches, he wishes that they would cut themselves off, that they would exclude themselves, excommunicate themselves from the fellowship of the church by their heresy. So neglecting circumcision would result in being excommunicated from among the people of God who inherit the promises. Verse 11 calls circumcision the sign of the covenant. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. So circumcision is not the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant. Now remember, a sign is something that represents, signifies, and points towards the, re- the reality, something other than itself. So what does circumcision represent? Well, it represents and signifies the separating of God's people from all the other peoples of the world. But later in the Old Testament, the true significance of circumcision is made clearer. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The Apostle Paul then picks up on this 
in Romans chapter one, chapter two, verse twenty-nine, where he says, "For he is not a Jew who is one inward outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God." Circumcision of the flesh was a sign. It was meant to point to the greater reality of circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the sinful desires of the old nature so that God's people, as he said in verse 1, might walk before me and be blameless. Colossians puts it this way, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So it's for this reason that our confession calls baptism a sign of our fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection. So just as circumcision represented in a dramatic way the inward reality of the covenant, so too baptism represents visually what has happened inwardly. We clearly see from this passage in Colossians there is a relationship between circumcision and baptism. They are both signs of their respective covenants. But while circumcision was administered to all who were born into the family of Abraham as a reminder of the covenant that they inherited by birth, Baptism is to be administered to those, as it says in Colossians, who have been raised with Christ through faith. So those who are believers are to receive the sign of baptism and no others. The nation of Israel lost sight of the nature of circumcision as a sign, and they began to see it more as the thing signified Let it not be so with our baptism. Let us remember that our baptism signifies the death of our old man, the death of our old nature, and the new life to which we have been raised through faith in Christ so that we may walk worthy of the gospel. The third part of the covenant, the third as for, concerns Abraham's wife. It's in verses 15 and 16. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. So here the covenant promise is made that the promised seed will come from Sarah's body. Remember that promise had been explicitly made that that the heir would come from Abraham's body. And so they had figured out some technicality that they could use uh, to get Abraham to go into Sarah's maid, Hagar, and say, well, the child came from his body, so this is the child. But God here explicitly says, no, the promised heir will come from Sarah's body as well. And so her name is changed to mark this promise. So the first section, the first as for Abram's name was changed to Abraham. The second section, the as for you, was marked by the sign of circumcision. This third section is marked by the changing of Sarai's name to Sarah. These names are very, very similar, even in the Hebrew. Sarai means my princess in a restrictive sense as one who is possessed by another. The new name, Sarah, 
means princess in an unrestricted sense. And this is fitting, for her descendants will be kings and rulers, and ultimately the Lord of glory himself, according to the flesh, will be her son. And again, these promises are entirely dependent on God himself. In the first section, it had been all of God. I have, I will, I will, I will. In the second section, obligations and duties had been bound on Abraham and his descendants. And it was no longer I will, it was you shall. But now here in this third section, the language again returns to I will. I will bless her. God will bless Sarah so that she has a son. God will bless her so that she becomes the mother of nations and kings. God will do it, and he will have to, for Sarah is now 89 years old. Notice Abraham's response to this promise in verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Theologians differ on whether Abraham was in doubt of the promise at this point. I tend to think not. First, he falls on his face just as he did in verse 3. This is a posture of submission and worship before the Lord, not disbelief. Second, he's not rebuked for his laughter, as Sarah will be later. So there seems to be no doubt or sin in it. I think it is the laughter of joy at the thought of a son to be born to his wife, a son who will inherit the promises of God. But then Abraham remembers the son that he already has. And so Abraham says to God in verse 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What about Ishmael? The son that I've raised for 13 years, will he be cast out and forgotten? Will he be included in the promise? God then responds in verse 19. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Now, the name Isaac means laughter, which is another reason I think it was laughter of joy and not disbelief. But Isaac is to be the son of the promise. The covenant will pass to him, not to Ishmael. But Ishmael is not forgotten, and so we actually get a fourth as for section here in verse 24. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. Ishmael will partake of the blessings of Abraham, having many descendants but he will not inherit the covenant promises. The Messiah will not come through Ishmael's line. God continues in verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. And then God departs. He goes up from Abraham. And then Abraham obeys. In verse 23, so Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. This is repeated again in verses 24 through 27. This shows the great influence Abraham had on the men of his household, that they believed the promise with him and did not hesitate to obey the Lord. 
It shows the great faith that Abraham had in the Almighty God to protect them. The men of his household would be incapacitated for some time. No one to protect their herds, their families, except the hand of Almighty God himself. The covenant had three parts. God established it. He promised it. He promised a multitude of descendants and land for them to dwell in. He also narrowed down the line of descent through whom the promised Redeemer would come. And he laid on Abraham and his descendants covenantal duties and obligations, duties which we have seen are remarkably similar to those laid on us in the new covenant. We can see from chapter 17 that the Almighty God, when he graciously makes a covenant with men, they are then obligated to obey him as their covenant Lord. The covenant of circumcision with Abraham, first promised in chapter 12 and then expanded upon in chapter 15 and now chapter 17, had within it the promise of something greater than itself. The promised Messiah, the mediator of the new covenant, would be born from among Abraham's descendants. The covenant with Abraham provided the means by which God would bring Christ into the world and by Christ establish the new covenant of which we are a part. And just as Abraham's sons, according to the flesh, had duties and obligations to keep and preserve the covenant and to walk holy before the Lord God Almighty, so we too have a covenant duty to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called in Christ Jesus. We are to be holy because we are sons, and the Father who adopted us is holy We are to learn to live like our Father, like our Prince and King. We are to bear His name in a manner worthy of Him. And we are to do so by the power of His Spirit at work in us. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 again says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants. The Lord will do it. The Lord will circumcise your hearts so that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. We love him because he first loved us. And if we love him, we will keep his commandments. The New Covenant Church has been tasked to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, administering the sign of the New Covenant to all who believe and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you to walk before him and be blameless. And he has promised that we will be his people and he will be our God. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray.